looking at history is one of the most powerful ways for a business owner to be able to predict different cycles, whether that is uh, different cycles pertaining to their customers, different cycles pertaining to uh, innovation and products or uh, services that they might need to offer. And I think that books like Good to Great, written by Jim Collins, is a, is a great example of the cycles that a business goes through in its um, infancy and through maturity. Books like Good to Great that look at all these different case studies of large companies and, and things like that and, and see what they did good and what they failed at. The guest that is here today is a man by the name of Peter Cohen, and he is a senior lecturer at Babson College. His most recent book, Goliath, How to Fight Goliath or Goliath Strikes Back, is um, about this very thing. It is a look at these different companies that have been incredibly successful over the last several years and what they were good at, what they did well, and what they did not do so well. So today we are looking at a couple different case studies, um, companies such as Best Buy and Circuit City, Amazon, uh, different companies like that, and what they have done well, and particularly, particularly how that applies to us as small business owners. What can we do in retail? And not only what can we do in retail as far as innovation, whether it be through products or through um, our services offered to customers, but also how we can battle against these larger retailers such as Best Buy, Circuit City, Amazon, Walmart. How can we fight them off? How can we win in a battle against them? I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Better Business Podcast, the podcast that helps you improve your family-owned retail business. My name is Steve Cook. I'm a third-generation business owner, and with the things I've learned and talk about on this show, I've taken my family's retail business to over $10 million in sales. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Better Business Podcast. My guest today is Peter Cohen, and he is a teacher, author, strategy consultant, angel investor, and blogger. He has a lot of uh, spare time on his hands, <laughs> as you can tell. He has written for Forbes and Inc. and is now a senior lecturer at Babson College. He is a top 100 retail influencer and is the author of the book, Goliath Strikes Back. Peter, I want to talk to you today about kind of the um, book and the premise of the book and things like that. But first off, thank you for being on. And if you would, maybe kind of explain the uh, premise of the book that you've written. Well, Steve, I was really delighted that you invited me on, and I'd be happy to explain the premise. Um, the premise is, is pretty much this, that um, I, I'm very uncomfortable with um, people uh, kind of honing in on one idea and repeating it over and over again. And when I wrote the book, the concept that I was quite uncomfortable with is that um, startups always disrupt large companies. And this whole concept of disruption, I thought, was just being you know, overused and oversold. And um, you know, sometimes it just didn't apply. So I took a sort of contrarian view of the whole thing and said, are there any large companies that are um, effectively countering this effort at disruption of, from startups? And um, what I discovered was that um, something kind of interesting, 
to me was that there are three different kinds of CEOs. There are CEOs who create the future. And those are CEOs who typically um, start um, do startups and the startups become successful. And the most successful create the future CEOs are the ones that can keep that company growing so much that it can go public and keep growing rapidly um, after it goes public. And when, when, when I think about people who have done that, I mean, certainly, um, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon comes to mind, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, people, there are some people who can do that. And, and I think those CEOs are very, very valuable. Um, and oftentimes they create these large companies and then they leave. I mean, they, they just decide they don't want to do it anymore or they, they get ill and they can't do it anymore. Um, so the most interesting thing is what happens to that next generation of CEOs after the founders. And there, in my view, there are two kinds of sort of follow-on CEOs that you typically see. One of them is what I call fast followers, which are people who uh, essentially can look at what uh, the, the startups are doing, look at what the most successful companies are doing to win over customers and use the strengths of the incumbent company that they're taking over to continue to develop new products and and, to, and, to, and to, to hold on to market share and gain market share. And then there are other CEOs who I call head in the sand CEOs. The head in the sand CEOs are ones who essentially are there um, without having any concept of what the customers want, what the, what the employees want, what the shareholders want, and they just do what they always have been taught to do in the past. And they don't really look at what's going on outside. And so those kinds of CEOs tend to drive a successful company into the ground. And there are successful fast followers who can revive a company that's not doing very well at all. So that was sort of the premise of the book, was to explore how these different kinds of CEOs have kind of case studies of how these different kinds of CEOs have operated in six different um, industries where there's a lot of e-commerce. It reminds me of a... Uh... The, I'm sure you've heard of the book that Jim Collins wrote, Good to Great. Yes. It reminds me of uh, kind of, the, you know, I, it seems like you and him have a very similar style and the um, looking into case studies and things like that. I, I've always enjoyed those books because it's it's not only a, it's it's kind of using history as a history lesson to also make application into what you do in a business. Um, yes, I, I definitely really um, was influenced by um, Good to Great um, and, and Jim Collins's uh, research. And I you know, I found it particularly interesting the way he would compare the successful and unsuccessful companies um, in the same industry and try to draw some lessons from comparing what the successful companies did to what the unsuccessful companies did. So that definitely influenced my thinking when I was writing that book. And it's also influenced other books I've written as well. That's awesome. Well, so in looking at that, some of the case studies that you have looked into, especially when doing research for, for the book and, and whether you use them in the book or not, you know, I'm sure you looked at a, a number of case studies that you didn't even, you know, have a place for in the book or whatever it might be. Um, but in looking at those, as it applies to specifically a retailer, what were some of your favorite case studies? And they can be in the positive, you know, something that you thought was uh, marvelous that a retailer did or negative. Negative, either either way, but what was some of the most interesting case studies that you looked into? Well, thank you for asking that question. I mean, my I have two uh, a favorite a, a favorite for both good and bad. My favorite for uh, good is Best Buy, and my favorite for bad is Circuit City. So I can talk <laughs> about you know either one of those or both. You know, let me know what you want me to talk about. 
Well, tell me about Best Buy a little bit. Um, okay. You had um, mentioned that. I think I'd, I'd actually seen a little bit of a of an article, so I might have uh, kind of seen the summary of of that. But tell me about um, kind of Best Buy and what what uh, best practices they had. Well, you know, Best Buy is uh, you know electronics retailer, and what I thought was really interesting is that um, they brought in a CEO from the outside to take over about ten years ago in August 2012. Um, the previous CEO had kind of flamed out, um, had some sort of a, a relationship with an employee that was inappropriate, and the company was, you know, losing lots of money, over a billion dollars, and was sort of in trouble. Um, and um, they brought in somebody named Hubert Jolie, who's a, a French uh, executive who had been a consultant at McKinsey and was running some um, Canadian travel company, so which wouldn't necessarily seem to have anything to do with um, Best Buy and its business. So he didn't, he was on the board of Best Buy though. Um, so he didn't have some knowledge uh -huh. of, of its business. But um, I thought that, that the way he turned around the company was just so impressive by, um, I think it was uh, 2019, he had turned the company around, the stock was way up, the company was doing spectacularly well, and he handed it off to a successor who was uh, a longtime Best Buy employee. and. So the way that he turned around the company um, was incredibly in, uh, powerful and insightful. And I think there are lessons from that, what he did, um, that are valuable to any a CEO who is coming into a, a situation where you have to turn around the company. Um, so I can kind of talk a little bit about some of the things that really uh, struck me about that, if you want. Yeah, what was what was some of the the mo things that stood out the most that he did, uh, especially the changes that he made? Of course, um, that would be something that's real important to learn. Yes. Um, well, to me, the most important thing he did was he listened to uh, people on the on the floor who have direct contact with uh, consumers who are coming in, and they told him some things that the company urgently needed to fix. For example, um, one of the things that was really interesting was that there was this concept of showrooming which means that p consumers go into a store and they uh, try out a product. And once they find the exact product that they want to buy, they leave the store, they go online and they buy that product uh, from some other vendor at the lowest possible price. That's one. That's something that they do. Uh, another thing that the, um, the people on the floor said was, our website is not very easy to use. It's hard for people to search for uh, things they want to buy and, and to make the purchases. Um, they also uh, commented on how um, the previous CEO had, had not treated the people very well, and they were very discouraged and demoralized, um, and there was no connection between the mission of the company and, um, and what the company uh, and what they could do in their own lives. So to me, that was one of the things that he did that was most powerful was that he asked the store managers to figure out a way of connecting what would be meaningful for the employees to what the company wanted to achieve. Um, so one example that really struck struck me was um, there was a, a Best Buy store uh, not too far from my house in Woburn, Massachusetts, um, where one of the people in the store talked to the manager of the store and said, I want to buy a house. And you know, real estate prices in Massachusetts are very high as they are in many parts of the country. Um, he couldn't afford to buy a house. So they agreed on a plan where he would uh, gain more skills that would allow him to get promoted so that he could afford to buy a house for himself and you know for his family. Uh, another thing that they did, which related to the showrooming problem, was that they uh, essentially 
when somebody would would come into the store and say, I want to buy, uh, you know, a flat screen TV or whatever it was, um, they would say, uh, I will give you the lowest price you can find uh, online anywhere. So they stopped the practice of, of showrooming by matching the lowest price. Uh, another thing they did which I thought was super interesting was that rather than compete with Amazon directly, which was obviously a major threat, um, any, any retailer is threatened by Amazon, um, they decided to uh, partner with Amazon because Amazon had some of its own products that it wanted to get into a store. Uh, namely, I think it was the, the Fire TV that they had, and, the, and they had a Fire uh, iPhone as well, sort of an iPhone, a smartphone. And so they put those into the, um, into the Best Buy store. And this enabled Amazon to you know, actually benefit from the showrooming of people actually trying the thing out in a, in a store. And uh, Best Buy got some of the revenue from that. But they also you know, developed a, a better relationship with Amazon uh, and learned more about what they did, which was also super helpful. Um, and they, you know, they fixed the website. Um, they, they did a number of other things like reduce a lot of costs that were not affecting um, the value to the customer, which I thought was a really super idea because um, there was something, uh, this is the last thing I'll mention, is that they were, they were losing something like $2 billion a year because of the way that they were packaging their flat screen TVs when they were shipped. So a lot of times they would break when they were delivered. And so Best Buy would have to you know, pay for a new TV. And the whole problem was really annoying customers. And so they essentially came up with a new way to package the TV so they wouldn't break when they were being delivered. And that was you know, just pure, purely wasted money that they were able to, to save. So all these different things um, spring from one thing, which is to think about the employee's experience interacting with customers and make it so compelling that customers will want to go and buy things from your store or your company, and they will want to, and you'll keep developing new products that the customers really like, and they'll keep coming back for more. So to me, that is a very, very powerful lesson from that um, from that story. And the thing that I find most surprising is that probably one of the most memorable and most effective things that he did was to treat employees really well and to respect employees. And, and the power of doing that is incredibly. Uh, has tremendous economic benefits for the customers and the shareholders and the employees. And so I thought that was really super. And when you look at the Circuit City example, which I also thought was a really interesting example, um, is that you see that they did the opposite. Um, and it kind of allowed me, I have a, an exam that I give to my students in, in business strategy. And one of the questions that I put on the exam is to ask them to figure out why Circuit City went bankrupt. And I have them use this technique that was developed by Toyota, which is called the five whys analysis, which is when you see a problem, you ask, why did it happen? And then when you figure out the answer to that first question, you ask, why did that happen? And you keep asking over and over again. And so um, what I did in analyzing this, why Circuit City went bankrupt was that there were actually seven whys. But um, at the, at, you know, basically they had this problem where uh, the CEO of the company essentially wanted to uh, get a $7 million bonus. And in order to do that, he needed to improve the company's earnings per share because that was what the bonus was based on. So rather than concern himself with the uh, you know, value to the customer of, of the employee, of the experience of going to Circuit City, he was trying to figure out how can I um, reduce the costs of this company so that the earnings per share will go up 
and then I'll get my bonus. So what he did was he replaced uh, 3,100 experienced salespeople at uh, Circuit City who really knew the products and really helped customers with 2,400 uh, low-paid part-time workers. That lowered the cost of the company tremendously, and that allowed him to get his bonus. But it also caused customer complaints to soar. They got hundreds of thousands of customer complaints. The customers all stopped shopping there because uh, they hated the experience, and they were able to get a better uh, service and better product selection at Amazon, at Best Buy, at Walmart, all these other places, better locations of stores, all these things that th these these competitors were much better for the customer than Circuit City. And so ultimately, Circuit City had borrowed a lot of money to buy inventory, and, the, and nobody went into the store to buy it. So because of that, they couldn't repay their debt, and they went bankrupt. So, you know, especially with that first example, if a retailer is looking at um, some of the positive case studies of, of companies that, you know, took a, a hockey stick um, growth pattern or um, I especially, I guess, in summary would say that for a retailer, it's incredibly important to a listen to your employees and b listen to your customer you know obviously you gave the example of that ceo he wasn't working on the floor of best buy so he wasn't in touch necessarily with some of the realities that might be happening which can also happen to a, a small business as well right mm -hmm. um however i think as a as in summary it's to listen to your customer um here's my question to you peter is how does a retailer, if a small business owner is going to compete with somebody like Best Buy or Walmart or or even some of the e-commerce um, places like Amazon, like you had mentioned, how how do you not let listening to the customer go too far? I think that um, Jeff Bezos is almost infamous for he he puts the customer on a pedestal or had put the customer on a pedestal when he was building Amazon, but he didn't necessarily listen to the customer because he was trying to encourage the company to invent more. And those were things that the, the customer didn't even know that the Amazon Alexa could exist. They didn't even know that two day shipping could, was even a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, but he did see value in the customer. Um, but for somebody like Best Buy, they listened to the customer and then almost, I guess you could say did exactly what they wanted. Um, is there a point where, or how do you find the line of listening to a customer, especially for a small retailer, a customer might say, well, if you had everything Walmart did, then I would, you know, shop here or whatever. Well, at some point you might go out of business because you're holding too much inventory or, you know, maybe your business model isn't set up for that or something. Is there a, or what is the line of allowing the customer to, um, take your business to a place where maybe it's not profitable or, or it can lead down a bad negative path? Uh, well, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, uh, I think one thing that I would, I would say is that um, there is a, a fine line between uh, sort of ignoring what customers want and just doing, always doing exactly what the customer wants. And I think, you know, the short answer is that um, it's what often happens and what I've seen in a lot of cases and certainly in, in my in Goliath Strikes Back, I saw a lot of cases of this, of something called confirmation bias, which is just this idea that um, a person um, becomes successful doing some something. And they now think that because they were successful, you know, maybe they started the company um, back when they started the company 30, 40 years ago, 
Um, they were super successful because they were they didn't spend money on anything except for the product for the customer, and they didn't you know have a have a good they didn't have good customer service. None of that mattered. They just had the lowest prices. So they assumed that even though they um, haven't been running the directly in contact with the customer for 40 years, that's still the way the world is. So now, you know, their the people come to them and say, um, you know, our competitors are stealing our customers because they're offering this, this new product or tremendous service or something different that we don't offer. And the CEO says, I don't want to hear that. If, if I hear it again, I'm going to fire you. Just do what I tell you to do. And so when the CEO mm. is too caught up in their old way of looking at things, which is the confirmation bias, and they're ignoring new information, then um, they're going to get into trouble that way. Uh, and as you point out, if they um, are always just doing exactly what the customer asks, they, they may also um, get dragged into something that may not be uh, profitable. So there has to be sort of a middle ground. And the middle ground is sort of a certain strategic mindset that I call intellectual humility. That is, I'm very confident. I've been very successful. But I also know that the world can change, that customer needs can change, new technologies can come along, change things. Um, you know, a lot of things outside of the company can change very quickly. And suddenly everything that I thought I knew is wrong. And I have to be able to move very quickly. Um, and certainly during the pandemic, you know, in the last two years, you've seen tremendous uh, changes in the way the world operates. And, and the companies that succeeded were the ones that responded to that most quickly. You know, so for example, um, one of the ones that I really find really interesting is Airbnb. Um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Airbnb. Um, Airbnb was doing fantastically up until the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, people stopped going to Airbnb. They stopped buying Airbnb. They stopped renting from Airbnbs because of uh, people quarantining. Nobody was traveling. Nobody was getting on an airplane and, and going anywhere. But unlike some of its competitors, Airbnb had data on what its competitor, its customers were still doing. They found that what its customers were doing was that instead of you know, traveling somewhere and, and staying in the city or staying you know, at some destination somewhere, there were a lot of people who were going on to Airbnb because they were living in an urban area where they were maybe in a small apartment and they were you know, basically quarantined and basically going stir crazy. And they wanted to rent an Airbnb that was in a more suburban area where there was more space. Uh, so they could move around, get outside, walk around, not be feeling imprisoned. And so they quickly changed their their website so that it was very easy for people to search for that kind of um, thing. And then they they uh, allowed then that caused their revenue to come back. Um, but in the interim, before they figured that out, which took about a very short period of time, actually about a month or two, they had to fire about half of their people in order to get their costs down. Mm -hmm. But it's the point is that. Um, you know, they, it's a combination. It's a combination of they have uh, innovative services, and sometimes if they're quick enough to see how customer needs are changing, they can emphasize those services that are in most in demand very quickly uh, and shift their business very quickly to adapt to the, to the changes. And now you have, you know, companies that were doing super well during the pandemic that are, their stock is down 80 or 90 percent because the demand growth has sort of fallen off. For example, Zoom or there is, you know, was tremendous growth, uh, over 100% growth during the, um, the the height of the pandemic. 
Uh, and now they're, you know, they're they're actually getting smaller. Netflix, the same thing, growing at 27% a year now, uh, losing subscribers. Um, so the, the point I, I think is that um, you have to have a mixture of different things that you have to do. You have to be thinking about innovative products that will meet the fundamental needs of the customer, but also be looking at how out, outside things are changing, how our customer needs changing. Another thing that I, I didn't mention before is that I think a big company should look at what at fast-growing startups are doing because those fast-growing startups may have something that is a new idea that they can somehow adapt for their customers. So that is something that I would always recommend a large company to do or any even a small business that you know to look at who their competitors are that are growing particularly fast and try to find out what are they offering customers that are are kind of causing them to switch their business over to that fast-growing startup. And it all comes down to something that um, I, I try to, to tell my students about, which is, it's, a, it's sort of a long word, but it's customer purchase criteria, which is what are the factors that a customer uses to compare your company's products and services to those of competitors? You know, it could be the price, the quality, the selection, the customer service. Um, those factors are, are different for each product. Um, some customers care more about some of those factors than others. But when you look at those factors, you know, who are the, the rivals out there and how are we positioned in the minds of the customer relative to those factors? So I don't think you should focus on trying to copy competitors, but I do think you should be aware of how customers perceive you and your company compared to uh, those, co those competitors, particularly ones that are growing very rapidly, because they might have a clue as to what a new business is that you could go into. Having studied a number of large companies, what would you say is a weakness or something that you would attack if you were a small business owner of a retail establishment? What would you attack at a large retailer that you think is a weakness of theirs? Uh, maybe it's industry specific, of course, that's tough. But as I guess, in general, what do you think is somewhere that a small business can win against a very large retailer? Well, this is a, a great question. And it's one that I've seen a lot of success with for, by small businesses, which is that um, a lot of large businesses, um, maybe they've made a number of acquisitions, they've acquired a, a lot of different companies. And they want to they want their customers to buy all of the different products from all the different co companies that they've acquired. So maybe they've acquired 10 companies and they you know, want to make sure that the salespeople sell all 10 of those products to the to the customer. But maybe that bundle of 10 products is much, much more than the customer wants to buy and much more expensive. And and so if you're a small company, how do you attack that? Well, I think what you do is you go to the customer and you find out what is the single most important need that they have and what is the least expensive and most uh, effective way of solving that customer's problem um, that will essentially look to the customer like, you know, here's this big company trying to sell me 10 products, nine of which I don't need and the whole thing is overpriced versus this smaller company that's offering me exactly what I need. It works better and it's, you know, 20% of the price. That is a uh, concept that I, I wrote about in, in another one of my books um, called A Hungry Startup Strategy, where I called it the quantum value leap. A quantum value leap is um, I'm offering, a, as a small business, as a startup, I am offering a customer 
much more value, much more of the benefits that they're looking for from the product at a much lower price. So the, the ratio between the value and all the benefits to the price that you're charging is 10 times higher than that, that same ratio is for from that large incumbent firm that's trying to sell you the, the 10 different products. So if you can offer them that, it's not hard to uh, to, to make the sale. You know, for example, I, I was talking to this one company in Boston that um, competes with Amazon. Um, and it competes with Amazon and the Amazon Web Services, which is, you know, they operate your computer systems for you. But this company is called Wasabi. And Wasabi offers one of those services, which is the storage of data. And it, it, it offers the, the, the same one Amazon storage service, but at 20% of the price. So customers that just want to buy that one service will, will, will go to Wasabi because it, they get the same thing for a much, much lower price. So it's that idea of sort of focusing in on what the customer really cares about uh, and rather than being sort of forced to buy that bundle of things that they don't really need or want at, at a much higher price than they want to pay. I've struggled with the same thing in our business. We're very specific into the racehorse uh, or performance horse industry. Yes. And um, I think that a lot of companies like Tractor Supply and um, there's some regional companies like Atwoods and things like that around our area that are very large competitors. And uh, one thing that I have found that's a easy thing to get or it's a temptation for a business owner is to always instead of improving something that you are doing already is to add another category or expand the selection or whatever it might be and i think a lot of large retailers are guilty of this because that's how you add sales for walmart is you now add clothing <laughs> you add, now add grocery grocery department you add uh you know diapers and then you add you know pet food and then you you know you keep adding all these categories which that was a goal of Amazon was to be an everything store. You know, it, Jeff was very clear about that. Um, but I think that that's such a great insight is to stay specific and to stay s into a, a very tight niche, as, especially at the beginning of a company, um, to get your foot in the door of, of being, I am the, the expert in this certain area. Um, whether that's like you said, storage or something like that, instead of trying to be the, everything to all people to be very um, important to one group of people or to be the best at a certain product or technology or whatever it might be. Um, so I think that that is a, a very good insight. And it's something that I have seen in our business that when you become the best in, in horse supplies and horse feed and things like that, you at least have a leg up in that. Now you might not have, you know, muck boots and, um, you know, potted plants and things like that. But um, I found that to be true in our company as well. Well, I, I will uh, say one thing, which I definitely, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. The growth imperative is, is really powerful. I mean, certainly, you know, as somebody who's invested in technology startups, I mean, there's no question that you look for growth. And where does the growth come from? Um, there's a couple of problems that you face. And one of them is that, um, you know, your market may mature. I mean, it may start off that you come up with this new product um, or this new service and, uh, you know, you're innovative, but then people copy it and it becomes, it starts to grow more slowly and it, it even starts to get smaller and matures. I mean, you basically saturate the market. So what do you do next? Well, one thing you can do is you can expand into new geographies. You can go into new 
states or new countries and with the same service where there's a real need for it, where it's sort of a new thing there. Uh, and that's you know, certainly one way to grow. Uh, another way to grow is to um, come up with an entirely new service that builds on your strengths um, and mm -hmm. that is sort of consistent with that same customer need. So one of my favorite examples of this is, is Netflix. Um, you know, Netflix started off doing the DVD by mail. Um, a, a lot of my students have never even heard of DVD by mail. They didn't know that there was this thing where you could go onto a PC and order a DVD and have it mailed to your house in a red envelope, and then they pick up the old one. Um, so, you know, that to me was, uh, you know, a real breakthrough and a real uh, thing that made it hard for Blockbuster Video, the, you know, the chain of, of retail stores that would rent you out a DVD or a VCR and sell you some microwave popcorn. Um, that's, you know, that makes it a, a lot harder for, for Blockbuster, which ultimately went bankrupt, although it was offered a chance to buy Netflix. But Netflix um, did not stick with that DVD by mail. Uh, you know, about uh, 2007, it uh, you know when the, when the iPhone came out, um, they went into the online streaming, which is an entirely new technology uh, and, and and really a new value proposition uh, that 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 is the thing that really propelled them into a global business. Um, and it built partly on their existing skills, which is that because of the uh, online, because of the DVD by mail, they knew what customers wanted to buy. Uh, they knew what their, what customers liked to watch. Yeah. On They found a lot of their customers liked to watch um, movies that were directed by uh, David Fincher, who was a director of um, the social uh, network, the Facebook movie, and also that had um, specific actors in them. Um, and so along came this property called House of Cards. And House of Cards had the characteristics of things that the Netflix DVD by mail customers like to look at. So they, Amazon, I mean, uh, Netflix spent $100 million to license that show from uh, British producers, which is sort of where it came from originally. Uh, and so my point is that they created their own content, uh, which was something completely new in order to be in the online streaming business because they couldn't just license new movies from the movie studios because they would charge them so much money, uh, it, it wouldn't be worth it because otherwise they'd be just basically giving away their 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 intellectual property and then letting Amazon, I mean letting Netflix take take the uh, take the revenues from it. So Netflix has to develop its own content. So Netflix developed a new capability, which was its ability to create its own shows. Um, and but it was built on its knowledge of customer behavior. So there were some old capabilities and some new capabilities. And the point was that, of course, they became incredibly successful. The rest of the industry followed them. And now Netflix is facing the challenge of what are we going to do next? We have to create some new growth curve that we can bet our business on. But they were able to do it um, twice. They were able to do it with the DVD by mail and the online streaming. Now they need to do it again. Amazon was able to do this multiple times, I think at least three times. So a company that can do that uh, is really the one that is going to be around for a long time, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a theme you see in 
in a lot of businesses, like we had mentioned earlier, the ability to hear and understand and know what your customer wants and then having the willingness and the humility to uh, see the the need for change and um, pivoting, whether it's by the industry or whether it's because the customer is demanding something else or um, something similar to that. It's funny. I just uh, finished for the second time. I've listened to it already, but uh, I just finished the uh, – the book that'll never work, which is the kind of story of Netflix is such an interesting book. I love that um, book is incredibly entertaining, especially the part it talks about blockbuster and they were wanting blockbuster to buy them. And, you know, it's just so crazy. Um, I, I forgot how large and uh, massive of a company blockbuster was at the time. I, uh, which I was young, you know, when they were just kind of in their prime, but still it, they were such a massive company. It's incredible they should have and could have, um, you know, crushed Netflix. It's just well, crazy. It's a that, classic example um, of confirmation bias because the company was always um, run by people who like to do deals. They, they enjoyed, you know, real estate mm. deals. Um, and so, you know, this, this idea of developing a new service would, you know, was not in their, it was not their strength. Um, they could, they, they, they didn't think that way. Um, and, and as a result, um, you know, they were vulnerable to Netflix, which was just looking at it from the perspective of the customer um, rather than from, you know, their own strength as a, as a doer of, of real estate deals, financing deals. So to me, you know, that is a real, you know, a question you asked before is, um, you know, how can a small company take advantage of a, a large company's weakness? And the, the biggest weakness that I see in large companies is some kind of confirmation bias, some kind of. Um, way of thinking that's been developed and ingrained over the years, and um, it becomes the the playbook that blocks out new ideas. Um, and if you are blocking out new ideas as a CEO of a company, if you are blocking out new ideas that are valuable to the customer, then you are going to lose those customers. That is for sure. And if you are competing with a company uh, and you have a, a new idea that customers like, and that idea is something that is hard and painful for an incumbent to copy, then you are going to enjoy a long period, a surprisingly long period where you will not have to worry about that large company copying. Peter, by way of a final question, if you had to send your entrepreneurial, aspiring entrepreneur students away with one thing of all the companies that you've studied after all the years of experience you've had, um, the experiences investing in companies and the things you've seen, if you had to send them away with one piece of advice from all the thing of, of, of those things, what piece of advice would that be? Well, I think one of the most important things is that if you're a successful company, you have to be thinking ahead to the point where your market is going to mature uh, and you're going to have to uh, invest in a new growth curve. Um, so you should always be looking for what is that next curve of, of, of growth? And it's, it's sort of an S-shaped curve. So when I say it's an S-shaped curve, it's like in sales over time is shaped like an S. And at the, at the beginning, there's very low sales. Uh, and then it starts to catch on with the so-called early adopters, the people who like to be the first people to try something. And then there's going to be a very rapid amount of growth. And then it's going to slow down and then mature and die. So what you want to do is, as your existing product line is peaking, if the growth is peaking and you know your, your market share is peaking, that's when you want to be investing at the sort of beginning of a new growth curve that's going to 
propel itself very, very quickly. And, and if you are there at the beginning of that next growth curve, then you will uh, continue your wave of sustainable rapid growth. And certainly when Amazon started investing in AWS, Amazon, Amazon Web Services, um, that was a, a tremendous example of exactly that idea. Uh, you know, it was obviously a, a large company and doing e-commerce and so many different product categories. Uh, and that was, a, that was a market that was you know, clearly attracting a lot of competition. And when they invested in the Amazon Web Services, they essentially created a new market. They continue to lead that market. Um, market share is much bigger than the small other competitors. And they continue to grow really fast. And they continue to get most of their profits from that business. So that is probably the best example I can think of, of a company that was successful that invested in a new growth curve so that it would continue to grow. However, having said that, uh, now that the pandemic is over, uh, Amazon is now in need of a new growth curve. So it never ends. Um, you know, success does not mean that you're going to continue to be successful forever. And there's a lot of things that happen when you're successful that might mean that you're going to fail. Um, and there's a lot of examples in Goliath Strikes Back about companies that were phenomenally successful that um, didn't adapt, like A&P. A&P was another example of a company that at one point it was the, it was the Walmart of of the country back, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Um, now it's bankrupt. It went bankrupt twice, and it's completely gone now. Hmm. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough for being on. You're an incredibly talented writer as well as a, a great speaker, and um, I uh, I thank you so much for being on. I've enjoyed getting to hear some of your insights today. Steve, thanks for inviting me, and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to ch uh, chat with you. You bet. Um, Peter's website will be linked in the show notes as well as the link to his book. And uh, it encourage you to go there and um, read a little bit more about him and to look into purchasing the book. Thanks again, Peter. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day.